I'd like to comment on, on a uh, political event uh, uh, far from here that uh, happened this week. Uh, there are good things and not so good things about uh, the Internet, but uh, there are definitely good things. Uh, uh, the, uh, I, I have just bought two books about the bad things about the Internet <laughs> that I'm waiting to digest. It actually has relevance for the study of Revelation, but I haven't gotten to read the books yet. So, <clears throat> The good things, though, uh, in the summer of 2009, my youngest daughter and I, we visited Tunisia. Uh, that's the country where the ancient city of Carthage was located. So there is the Carthage uh, uh, Association, and there is also the Church Father Tertullian, one of the most influential of the church fathers, Tertullian, he held court in Carthage. And he, of course, has influenced theology in major ways. Tertullian was the, the thinker in the early church who was less prone to make a sharp distinction between soul and body. Tertullian is the more holistic thinker of the early church fathers, and he as I said, was he was quite a, quite a, probably not a very likable person. He seemed to rub people the wrong way, and he, he seemed to like to do so. <laughs> so there are, there are some things about him that, that uh, could go either way. But anyway, Tunisia. <clears throat> Tunisia has been in the news this, this uh, week because the ruler of Tunisia, uh, he, has, he had to pack up uh, and leave uh, in a hurry from his country with his family, with an extended family of, of uh, I think we will not do any, uh, say anything wrong when we say with an extended family of extremely corrupt people who have ruled Tunisia for 23 years. And he has, of course, run unopposed in elections and sort of rubber stamp type of elections. But thanks to there was some discontent in this country because right in, in the ancient city of Carthage, actually, right there, I think the place now is called Abu, Abu Said or uh, something like that. Anyway, right there, <coughs> there was a street vendor who was selling vegetables in the street a few weeks ago. And then the police came and carted him off, him off because he didn't have a permit. But he had nowhere to go and nowhere, no other way to support his family. So he put himself on fire and actually committed suicide, dousing himself and, 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 uh, and just saying, you know, okay, that's it. That infuriated the population of Tunisia. So there has been a lot of unrest. They're simply fed up with a huge discrepancy between the rich and the poor, the lack of opportunity, the, the unemployment, and, and the lack of political freedom to say who, to sort of have what you think you have here, what you have here, I should say, uh, 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 a government of the people. So, <clears throat> so there has been escalating unrest and Internet and Twitter and Facebook, those kinds of things make it possible for people to talk to each other and actually be in the streets, uh, even when they are told not to do so. And early this week, some people gave us a preview of Revelation 19. I'm stretching the metaphors here. <laughs> but they gave us a free preview of 
a of a country of a people who rid themselves of the oppressor. So they were shouting in the streets of the capital of city, Tunis. The, the young people were shouting, we are not afraid of you anymore. We are not afraid of you anymore. And that is in some sense a, a, a sort of, there is some relation to the sense of elation and freedom that you have rising from, from the pages of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, says how the oppressor has ceased. You know, how the, the, those who oppress have, have come to an end. And that is kind of what you were seeing, seeing in, in Tunisia this year, uh, this week. The ruler left with his extended family, flew off to Saudi Arabia. How, how it is that somebody the one day has been running this country as though he owned it as though it was his private property. And now he has to flee because he knows that the people really didn't love him. They actually can't stand him. And they said, not one more day, not one more week, leave, they said in the streets, and he left. You know, that's quite, quite uh, amazing, and I think uh, not completely irrelevant to our to our topic, to get a sense of what is going on here and uh, the role of the power of oppression in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, does any of you want to comment on, on Tunisia or Tertullian? Or <laughs> are you just happy that the oppressor has ceased? Now, it doesn't look completely promising because by the constitution in Tunisia, the, the, the head of the speaker of the parliament is supposed to take Take the, take the powers, and the prime minister did, and the prime minister comes from, another, from the same town as, the, as the, the post-president, and he is kind of, you know, probably trying to, to sort of ride out the storm and so on. Just hope for the best for, for a sorely, sorely tried country. In some ways, socioeconomically, Tunisia has done better than many countries of, of the, in the Middle Eastern sort of family, but, but you know, politically, in terms of personal freedoms, it has not been good. So, We're doing Revelation 19, and I just want to review the images in the gallery, in the pictorial gallery of Revelation 19, you might say. <clears throat> there are four living creatures, 24 elders, and a great multitude, which makes you think of what? which makes us think of the introductory scene in the heavenly throne room. That's the lay of the land in the heavenly council. Now, having talked about earthly politics, let's do some heavenly politics, because in the heavenly council, there is four, we have four living creatures, 24 elders, and a great multitude. So there is a sort of, <clears throat> in Revelation, creating re-awareness of the setting of the chapters 4 and 5, where these beings are figure prominently. Then there are also exclamations of praise. And the exclamations of praise are uh, quite loud. If, uh, we had been, if they had been praising God as loud as they are doing, uh, is, uh, if people, if the church in the university church were praising God as loudly as they do in heaven here, we could have heard them from within this, from inside this room. That's how, how loud they are. <coughs> Maybe they are even louder. You could have heard it, <coughs> heard it even from farther away. 
<coughs> that's not in the Bible. It's just my interpretation. <laughs> and then, in, in a sort of strange, strange uh, change of metaphor, strange uh, sense of imagery, quite unprepared as you walk down the, the hallways. And, and the, maybe this came to my mind because my wife has, has uh, set up an appointment for us to go to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. We'll go there this afternoon. It's free uh, entry. They have a special exhibit there on the relationship between church and state in the French Middle Ages which is an, a subject that interests us here because it has something to do with, with some of the core, core issues that we're studying in the book of Revelation. So we will go there and there will be, there, they have quite a lot of pictures to, to see how, how uh, people have represented this relationship through the, through the years. Anyway, as you walk down the hall and see pictures on the wall in Revelations 19, you see these images and suddenly there is an image of a wedding. And there is a bride, and she has made herself ready. And there is a wedding invitation. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding, wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, so that's quite unexpected, and it is in, in some ways a bit jarring. How did he manage to throw a wedding into this when most of it otherwise is war? You know, there is conflict, and then suddenly there is a wedding. What is going on here? And then, of course, we move on, you know, he's not letting us breathe much in Revelation. There is a rider on a white horse leading an army, and we have spent some time doing that. We'd have to spend even more time if we were to do everything and sort of get things resolved, but, but we have to have some, uh, <coughs> some work to do on our own afterwards and make up our own minds. So, Revelation 19.19, 19, there is preparation for war. And then there is a sense of ending of the war because the beast and the false prophet that have uh, featured several times in the book of Revelation, finally they are captured. So you have a sense of ending here that now we are, uh, the, the conflict is, is, uh, is being resolved and coming to an end. But those are some of the images in the gallery, and each image is uh, worthy worth the description. And some of you who might be able to, to create uh, pictorial representations on your own uh, might just find this to be a worthy project for your, <coughs> your art, uh, art uh, endeavors. I wish I could, I could do something, but that is... Definitely something I can't do. <laughs> so, just re repeating this uh, representation here, the reciprocity between Revelation 5 and Revelation 19 is interesting because the outcome that is depicted in Revelation 19 is prefigured in Revelation 5. And the prefiguration in Revelation 5 then comes to sort of full circle uh, in Revelation 19. So there is a sort of talking to each other in those chapters, uh, and then there is the story in between. But the story in between is in some ways assumed already in Revelation 5, if you can get that idea. So Revelation 19, 17, and 18. I will ask one of you to read this, and uh, we have a microphone. Maybe we can use it for the, the big text uh, text readings at least.
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come and gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. So now there was two invitations in the book of Revelation, isn't there? In, in chapter 19, there are two invitations. There is an invitation to a wedding, isn't there? Which is a happy occasion. And now there is an invitation. Now, not to, to the invitation to the wedding says, you know, blessed are all those who have been invited to the, to the wedding of the Lamb. But here there is an invitation to the birds of heaven to gather for the great supper of God. And then, you know, here is the menu. This is not, this is quite a repulsive imagery to say the least. And, and uh, uh, just for now, we will not try to make it le- any less repulsive. Let's just do an Old Testament background text. There are a number of these. I think the back. You, there, is, there are background texts also in uh, Deuteronomy that will work for this text in uh, Revelation 19. But uh, there are several texts like this one in Jeremiah, and, uh, and I think that that works, uh, works quite well as an antecedent for, for what we see in Revelation. And I shall make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem, in this place, and I shall cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life, and I shall give their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. The notion that here is the end, there is a sort of, you know, you, you have this, this very stark image of something, uh, uh, something coming to grief, and in the paradigm that we have pursuing here, we see the losing side. We see what goes wrong on the side of the opposing side in the cosmic conflict really is worked out on that side itself. It works itself out in history, you might say. And we'll repeat, review that again. I just want to give this background text and that, have that as, as a raw material, as, as a sort of resource material for, for how to interpret Revelation. So, here is a couple of here are a couple of comments on on how I uh, will propose to interpret Revelation uh, nineteen seventeen and eighteen. The call regarding the Great Supper goes forth from the perspective of the aftermath of the final battle. I think you can say that you're sort of seeing the battle is over and the birds come in. You know the vultures. Uh, come in uh, afterwards. One of the armies, horses and all, don't uh, uh, overlook the horses because that's one of the contested uh, images in the book of Revelation. One of the armies, horses and all, has been defeated. Will you agree with that? The Revelation, uh, looking at the text, looking in your handout, will you agree that, that it looks like one of the armies has been defeated, horses and all? Come and when, when that call goes out to the birds of, the, of heaven, does it look like there has been something has happened there and the battle is over and one army has been defeated, horses and all? Thank you. <laughs> and the destruction, and this is more an interpretive move here, 
the destruction and even the cleanup is depicted as a consequence that is intrinsic to the cause of the losing side. You know, who does the destroying here? How does this work itself out? And looking back at things we have done in some detail earlier in our, in our studies, and now also with the text from Jeremiah as part of our, our, our reference uh, material, uh, that is a contention, a, 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 a proposal I will make here. And I wonder if you would like to comment on that. Brad. Yeah, it's self-destruction, and it is destruction working itself out in the arena of history. There are certain things that, you know, that one thing leads to another, and, and God, uh, if God is the destroyer here, the, the hand doing the destruction is, is Babylon. It is, you know, in the human equation, these things are working themselves out. So, and, and surely that is a frightening image that the people actually actually were, were, were eating each other, you know, that, uh, that, that all, even parental love seemed to, seemed to uh, have run its course, as it were. Josephus writes about these things. The, the, it's also uh, verified in, in outside, outside the Bible, not only then, but also at the destro- when the Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a fearsome siege in AD, 90, uh, AD 70, I mean, when the Romans uh, destroyed Jerusalem uh, uh, later on. Okay, <clears throat> now, uh, Revelation 19, 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider of the horse and against his army. We have done this terminology before, but this is a good time to do it one more time and we will have to do it again somewhat in the book of Revelation, I mean in chapter 20 in Revelation, because this war imagery comes back one last time in chapter 20. So <clears throat> this is then, uh, who, is doing, uh, who is doing this in Revelation uh, in verse 19? Who is, who is uh, doing the war thing now? Well, the beast and the kings of the earth. And the beast has a certain connotation. You and I are supposed to know who the beast is by now because the book of Revelation has prepared us for that. The beast and the kings of the earth, that image is mostly taken from Revelation 17. And we will revisit that too because the book makes it quite easy for us if we just, if we just uh, map out the terminology in this book that is most characteristic and most important. So let's do that. So here are these powers, and they are making war against who? The rider on the white horse. And the rider on the white horse is Jesus. And say one more thing about that. Since Revelation 19 is so is so emphatically leaning back and wishing us to remember Revelation 5. The rider on the white horse is also the slaughtered lamb of Revelation 5. He is also the victim of violence of Revelation 5, you might say. So these are images. They are kind of uh, hard to master because they, they are so in so many ways, richer and more counterintuitive than we would like them to be. So let's do the retrospective then, what, what comes to us on the war theme in Revelation, starting with the beginning. 12.7, 
war, and this is my translation, and your translations will, will vary the terminology more, but I wish to keep it very consistent so that you and I can hear the word in Revelation, that Revelation is using, uh, <coughs> polemos. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels had to war. We would say maybe had to fight, but we have agreed here before that you can, that this word war can be what? This word can be what? It can be a noun and it can be a verb. And uh, the Greek of Revelation uses, uh, uses that connection very much, and we need to do it too to make it easier on ourselves. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels had to war against the dragon. So with that translation of Revelation 12.7, who started the conflict? Reviewing that again. Who, who made the trouble? Who created the necessity of conflict? The opposing side, Right? So it's the opposing side. And in the end, going back to Revelation 19.19, 19, who now is, is gathering to make war in Revelation 19.19? 19? The opposing side again. It's sort of the opposing side that leads the way, that is the troublemaking side all along uh, till the bitter end. You see that? So uh, Michael and his angels had to war against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels warred. In the in the NRSV, it says that the dragon and his angels fought back. It doesn't say that in the Greek. It just says it keeps it keeps relentless focus on the opposing side. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels had to war against the dragon. Why? Because the dragon and his angels warred. That's what they were doing. That created the necessity. That's our key text here. Three times you have the war theme in this simple verse in Revelation twelve seven. Then, then, of course, the dragon is, uh, or is ejected from heaven, and, and he's defeated, and Revelation 12 celebrates the defeat of Satan. Uh, I used in my dissertation on Revelation, and I didn't put it in the slides here, but I, I created the terminology of Lucifer's fall from innocence, that there was first in in the heavenly realm, you might say, there was <clears throat> something happened to Lucifer. He fell from innocence. And then there is a struggle of some sort. The character of that struggle uh, is uh, uh, not, uh, not only something that works itself out in the realm of power. Uh, there is a fall from innocence. Then there is in Revelation 12 a fall from what? On the part of Lucifer. A fall from influence. A fall from influence. How is that? How, how, how so? How does he fall from, in, from innocence? He falls when he becomes from having been what? From having been, a, from having been a nice guy. No, from having been the, the epitome, the sort of gold standard of, of perfection. That's what the Old Testament makes him out to be. He is really the one by which you measure goodness. He is very, very good. From having been very, very good, he becomes something other than that. He falls from innocence. 
And then he falls, then how so? How does he fall from influence? And how, what is it that makes him, make, that makes, that sort of constrains his influence? How does he get influence in the first place in the biblical narrative? He gets influence by misrepresenting God. He has no qualities in himself by which to get influence, but he can get influence by projecting a flaw in the other side. He can build himself up by pulling the other side down. Isn't that how he does it? This is the title of one of my my books that I have bought that I simply could not resist buying on about the Internet. <clears throat> this is what is the problem with the Internet, is that you can destroy somebody's reputation on the Internet, can you? Can you destroy them quickly? Can you destroy a reputation quickly on the Internet? Like in five minutes? Like in two hours? You know, and how do you do it on the internet? What is it? What is it? What's the novelty on the internet? That that the internet. What what does the internet make possible that you could not do on that scale before? Instant communication. Instant communication, surely, surely, more, more so than before. So that would work. Surely there is, an you have access. You can do things. <coughs> somebody, <coughs> somebody was expel. There is a person in. And, and uh, I read the news in, from Norway on one of the newspapers, and there is a person in, uh, from the uh, North Caucasian region in, in Russia who has been in Norway since she was 16 years old. And she is very, has much more now of a Norwegian identity, but she has been in the country illegally. We have a few illegal aliens in Norway. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to hide in Norway. It's such a small country. <laughs> You have 12 million here, I've been told. But she has been an illegal alien in Norway, but she speaks Norwegian fluently without the slightest accent. And she has just written a book. She's 25 years old now. She's just written a book about uh, being, uh, it's called Ill- Illegally Norwegian. Ulovli uh, Norsk is the title in Norwegian. She's illegal in the country. And now the bureaucracy has decided that she needs to be, to be expelled. She needs to, you know, she is there illegally. And, and, the, and there is a sort of a tendency in all countries, but surely in our country, in, in my country, in Norway, there is a tendency to make the bureaucracy autonomous. There is no oversight on the bureaucracy. Whatever they decide, that's it. You know, and nobody, it's like nobody has responsibility anymore. There is a sort of inevitability to what bureaucracies decide. So she is going to be expelled. Well, (laughs) the people in Norway who actually favor a restrictive immigration policy, they kind of had it in their face now. Because how can you send out this person who has a master's degree and is speaking the language like you do? And is you know, even when it comes to issues of race, you know, she has the right race because there are these issues too, ethnicity, you know, no problem there. So the internet <coughs> got all fired up, and within minutes there were fifty thousand people on Facebook protesting her expulsion. I was one of them too. I signed up immediately. 
because I think we need a much more generous, a generous policy with immigration. And, and, and sure, you can do stuff you know, with the internet and the overthrow of the regime in, Tun in Tunisia is, is another case in point. There is another thing you also can do on the internet that, that, that is unprecedented. You can, who said that? Yes, you can do it anonymously. You see, you have no chance. You, you, in a court of law, one of the basic things of, of habeas corpus is that you have the right to face your accuser. But, in the, in the, but that right is taken away from you. And the other book I have bought is a book about that. And one of the contributors to that book is one of the most influential <coughs> thinkers in America in, in academia, Martha Nussbaum. Martha Nussbaum is one of the editors of that book. She teaches law and theology at the University of Chicago. And she, has to, she talks about, one of, the, one of my books is called The Future of, Repu of Reputation in the Age of Internet. And the other one is, very, is about the same thing. How reputations can be, can be destroyed in the age of, in our time. Well, what was it Lucifer did? as we face the serpent in the Garden of Eden, when he talks about God in the Garden of Eden, he pulls God down. Has God really said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Does that pull the other person down? If, you know, any sort of chance that God might have done that? But who originated that suspicion? Who originated that rumor? See, what does, the, what does the serpent do? Does he, take, does he take responsibility for the rumor? You see, the serpent is very clever. He is even trying to issue a denial. He is even trying to say, I think that is a very uh, bad rumor, a bad thing to say about God. It should be corrected. The serpent wants to correct, proposes to correct a rumor or to verify a rumor of which he is the source. That's clever. That's amazing that you can do. It's the anonymity of the rumor that creates its, its sort of, that, that makes it hard to stop it because it is like there is something out there, something is being said about God that is already sort of true to a point or already has some traction. You see what, what, what I'm trying to, 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 to hint at here. So, <clears throat> so he falls from innocence, and does he ever fall from innocence? Does he ever fall to the point that he is willing to say about that other person who is, he knows it. He knows that that other person is a good person. He knows that that other person is a generous person. He has even been the... the the covering cherub. He has even been the one cushioning the glory of God for the rest of creatures because the glory of God, not only the brightness of God, but all that you can say about God is something in some ways that needs to be filtered or it would all overwhelm, uh, overwhelm creaturely sense. He knows it is false. But he starts that rumor to destroy the other person, to build himself up by pulling the other one down. Now that, and then that rumor has influence. So how is his influence curtailed? How does he fall from influence? 
he falls from influence because God does what? He comes into this world and in the person of Jesus, he reveals himself. He reveals himself to be something other than what the serpent made him out to be, as you have heard said in Loma Linda on certain occasions in the past. He reveals himself, and he destroys the other person. He destroys the power of the other side by, by revelation, doesn't he? There was this male child that was born, and the dragon stood there in Revelation 12, ready to swallow him up, but the child managed to escape. No, the way Revelation tells that story is really, really quite strange. Anyway, so here we are. We're picking up the story. Revelation tells this in very quick, quick, you know, very, you know, it flashes the pictures fast before us because the predominance of the story in Revelation is focused on what we do after that. You know, why is there a history even after Jesus? Why? Why, if his influence has been destroyed in some ways, in some, that's, that Satan has been exposed, uh, why does it go on after that? That is a big, big mystery, and most, most theological projects don't, don't care that much about that. Most theological projects do not care very much about why questions anyway. But the book of Revelation is very inter- interested in, in the why questions of reality. So, so we go on then. The dragon is going on after he has been come down to earth and his influence has been curtailed in, in heaven, at least in heaven. The game is over because they have seen that he was a, uh, he was a misrepresenter. So, but on earth he goes on. The dragon went off to do what? Make war on the rest of her children. The children of who? The children of the woman who had given birth to the male child, to Jesus. So we have the church here in, in the picture. And Revelation thirteen seven. it was allowed to do what? The opposing side in the conflict was allowed to do what? To make war and to fail. No, it was allowed to make war and to defeat them. You know, this is really going, you know, it seems like now you could sort of close the, close the net around this opposing side. Why such loose reins? Why allowing the opposing side to create so much trouble, to make war on the saints and even to defeat them? And Revelation eleven seven, which precedes the pivotal chapter, Revelation 12, talking about the two witnesses in, in uh, Revelation 11. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will do what? Make war on them and conquer them and kill them. You know, you see what is going on here. Well, you know, you come... So the, the armies of God or God's side seems to not do so well here. Isn't that uh, striking? Isn't that... You know, why such, such uh, leeway to the evil side? That is the problem. That is the problem in human reality. That's the problem that the book of Revelation wishes to explore. That's the problem we are discussing in my class, God and Human Suffering, too. And, 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 and that seems to be a biblical subject, at least by the criteria of, of the book of Revelation. 
Then we move into this battle on uh, the battle of Armageddon, uh, and we are now at the at what is the sixth bowl, the seven, seven last plagues, the seven last bowls. And the book says that these are demonic spirits performing signs. This is talking about the beast and the, and the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for war. So more war here going on on the great day of the God of God the Almighty. So what does that suggest? The great day of God the Almighty is a very important Old Testament metaphor. It means the final showdown, doesn't it? It means the, the end game is the beginning. And then again, reading Revelation 19, 19 again. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. Does it seem to you that Revelation 16, 14 and Revelation 19, 19 is talking about the same thing? So the so-called battle of Armageddon comes back to us in Revelation 19. You agree with that? Is that similar imagery? There is no linearity to the narration in Revelation. It is repetitive. It goes back and forth. It is more sort of a visual presentation that is narrated in bits and pieces. But you and I, by now, we're almost able to see the whole thing uh, when, we have, when we have gone back and forth like, like we have done here. I think, I, I, I think that you're making some interesting comments. I, uh, what you said, that he gains confidence... You know why does so? Because it was allowed to do this. It was allowed to do this. You know, if this had been a power issue only, if that this had been something that could be resolved in the power dimension only, then God should win, shouldn't God win? Shouldn't uh, because the uh, Book of Revelation thinks that God is omnipotent. He thinks that God is the Pantocrator, you know, the the the, the all powerful one. So if this could have been fixed with power alone, God should have fixed it. There must be something other than power going on. And, and your suggestion that, that the apparent or the, the actual success of the opposing side makes him think, well, maybe I can win this whole thing. You know, it could be that. Now, he has lost the battle. He has lost, you know, the cosmic conflict. Even in Revelation 12 says that he knows that his time is short. But knowing, knowing is not always, you know, there are, there, are, there are ways of knowing. There are ways of knowing that are helpful to you and will actually help you choose, you know, change your course of action. There are ways of knowing that really doesn't help you. You know, there are types of knowing that doesn't help you. Uh, I, I don't know if I have mentioned this already, but I usually save this story for Revelation 20, uh, and, and we would need all kinds of resor- resources in Revelation 20, but maybe I did tell you already. Uh, there is a book by Joachim Fest, who is one of the foremost experts in Germany on the last days of Hitler, or, or, or on the history of the Nazi uh, period in, uh, in Germany. And Joachim Fest, that, that this is the book that was sort of the background for the movie that was made on the last days of Hitler. Wasn't it called The Last Days of Hitler? Der Untergang in German. And, 
what was it called in the US? It barely came on the screens here and disappeared. I have not seen the movie, but I have read the book. Uh, it's called The Last Days of Hitler in English. And, and, uh, uh, and Joachim Fest has, a, has, a, has a, a scene there where the, uh, see, first uh, the, the Nazi powers made a, 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 a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. Right? Remember that? Which was quite incongruous to do because Nazi ideology, which is a fascist right-wing, you might say, ideology, and communism, which is a totalitarian left-wing ideology. So here you have two totalitarian ideologies that are diametrically opposed to each other. The fascist right-wing totalitarian, the communist left-wing totalitarian. And Hitler says, well, we'll make a truce, we'll make a non-aggression pact. Whereas in the home, in the domestic political arena, they have been, you know, at very much uh, in, the, in each other's faces. Well, it wasn't sincere, of course. It was extremely insincere. Hitler was just buying time so he could slug it out on the Western Front. And then, then you know, turning to, to the Soviet Union. And... and uh, the Soviet Union pulled the German soldiers, pulled, they pulled back like they had done with Napoleon and pulled the Germans into this vast, vast, vast continent, as you know well. And, and there was winter and there are elements and there were supply lines, you know, and it went very, very bad. And the German soldiers did very bad things and they also suffered horribly. And in 1943, it is clear, I, th I don't know if it's 19... I can't say the date exactly here, but it's obvious that Germany will lose. By now, it's obvious that they will lose. There is a certain knowing that you can do if you are, you know, half awake. It's obvious that they will lose. And Molotov, to limit suffering, Molotov is the Russian, Russian foreign minister. He meets with the German foreign minister. His name is von Ribbentrop. He meets with him, and Molotov says, we, will offer, we offer you a truce, a ceasefire. Let's call it off, because we will just lose millions more, and you can't win. And von Ribbentrop, representing the German side, he knows that you can't win. So he is ready to promote that and, and argue with Hitler, let's just accept the, 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 the offer. And then here is Hitler's answer. It's an amazing answer. Because he, too, knows, in a sense, that this is an unwinnable war. He says, if we make peace with them tonight, we will attack. If I make peace with them tonight, I will attack them again tomorrow. I can't help myself. There are certain kinds of knowing that will not help you because there is an inevitability to something else, some sort of unreasonable element. So Satan knows in chapter 12 in Revelation that his time is short, that he is on the losing side of this. But he doesn't know, he does, still doesn't know. It is not that kind of knowledge that will en enter his policy. It will, in fact, you know, it will, in fact, intensify his policy. Satan has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. That's how the logic of that. So, 
Exactly. So maybe God is doing, maybe God is up to something. Maybe God is get, helping him, actually uh, enabling that sort of sense in him that, uh, you know, for a purpose. Maybe there is a purpose to God allowing this to happen. Well, you know, and we, you and I need to work hard on this one. All of us need to work hard on this one. Find out what is the logic. Why does God let him win like that? And, and maybe give him that, that sort of sense that maybe I can win the whole thing. I, th- I have suggested here before, and, and, and I'm always reluctant to repeat it because it is contrary to the usual Adventist understanding of Revelation, uh, the, the seal sequence in Revelation 6. I, I'm suggesting, and many scholars uh, think likewise, that the seven trumpets, the seven seals, and the seven bowls are all depictions of demonic activity, including the seven seals. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 is not a good horse. He goes for conquering and intending to win. That's the, that's the language of Revelation 6, uh, verses two, verse 2. The white horse goes forth, conquering, intending to win. And then the other bad horses, everybody agrees that they are bad horses. And that's, that's you know, we can't re- do, redo that now. We'd have to start over if we were going to do that argument fully again. So <clears throat> let's just say that something is going on here that first gives a lot of leeway to the opposing side. He wins and he wins and he wins. And then there is this final battle where, again, the initiative was on the side of the losing side, and then uh, verse 20 here, and one of you read that quickly, and then we need to see if we can make a few more comments and raise a couple of questions toward the end here. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Yeah, so here we have... We seem to have capture and defeat, or defeat and capture of the opposing side. Don't we have that? So my headline is okay. And here, then, reviewing who is doing, who, is, who are we seeing here? If we call this the last stand, it seems like the last stand. Uh, it isn't. <laughs> but it is the last stand for the triumvirate that is introduced in Revelation 13. For that triumvirate consisting of, of the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Uh, for that triumvirate, it is the last stand for these two members of that group. Is that true? The false prophet is another terminology for the beast from the earth. The, the, if you look at the, the way the actions of the false prophet are the actions of the beast from the earth in Revelation 13. So that's just, he has two names. He has two names. But are these two, are these two uh, removed from action in Revelation 19? These two were thrown into, were, see, were captured, weren't they? Doesn't it say that? So it said that very clearly. These two, the beast from the was captured and the false prophet and 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 so who is, so this is the last stand at least of this constellation of powers the beast was captured and with it the false prophet and the verses to read otherwise is revelation 13:1 11 and 16:13 uh, as as uh, 
complementary verses. Now, what is going on? What is it that that revelation has against this power? Yes, they had performed in its presence. Uh, the, I mean, the action attributed to these powers is that they had performed in its presence, uh, who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. That's a mouthful. Lots of stuff there. Two, but we can take it down to two things. What had it done? The signs and wonders had done what? And this is the action of the beast from the earth in Revelation 13. The signs and wonders had done what? They had deceived those who live on the earth. So, and the signs and wonders were to what level did he take those signs and wonders? He even makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. So there is a sort of way of authenticating itself that is similar to the authentication of which story in the Old Testament? The Elijah story, when the true side identifies itself with power from heaven, now the false side is making that its signature statement. And it has persuasive power. That's what the Bible is saying. And then there was the mark of the beast. And we have not done as much on that subject as we should have. Uh, I have tried to write a chapter about it in my book on the lost meaning of the seventh day. That is, you know, I think is an improvement on other previous attempts to, to, to write about this, but it is certainly not the last word. Let's just say that here, this is winning by deception. This is winning by coercion. The other side, because there are two things in the, in the sort of basic armamentarium of the opposing side, of the demonic side. There is deception. That is easier because then you, then you let people, then they come on board, as it were, voluntarily, albeit on false premises. But there is coercion for the rest of them. So the mark of the beast, the purpose of the mark of the beast, is, has a coercive intent. And, and, and then God has done some countermeasures. But Revelation 19 remembers that this was the problem. Now, and then there is the what now. So... Uh, <clears throat> what now? These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So now the game is over for these powers. And then Revelation 19.21, And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here is what I've done on the slides that remain that, we will, that I will just mention briefly. I'm saying that in the trumpet sequence under the sixth trumpet, there is unambiguous demonic activity that, that shows that the demonic side is, is a destroying side, with fire and sulfur and all those things uh, associated with it. The number of the troops of Calvary was 200 million. I heard their number, and this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of humankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. There is demonic self-destruction, I have suggested in Revelation 14.20. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the bridles of the horses for a distance of about two hundred miles. And I have shown you this slide before from First Enoch that also shows self-destruction on the opposing side in the conflict. In those days a stream shall flow with their blood, for a man shall not be able to withhold his hands from his sons, nor from his sons' sons, in order to kill them. Nor is it possible for the sinner to withhold his hands from his honored brother. From dawn until the sun sets, they shall slay each other. The horse shall walk through the blood of sinners up to his chest, and the chariot shall sink down up to its top. And then there is self-destruction within the ranks of the opposing side in Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore, they will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. I'm just running these by in order to ask these questions. Here is question number one. Why are the most important sentences, the most important verbal elements in the passive voice? They are in the passive voice. They were captured. They were thrown. They were killed. What does the passive voice do? One more time. It anonymizes the acting subject. Who did it? The sentences do not say that. They tell us the story in the passive voice so as to leave it, to leave us some thinking, leave us to think a little. Who did it? So, and if you compare that to Revelation seventeen sixteen, which is in the active voice, and you have that verse on your handout here in Revelation. The ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Who is doing it here? There is no ambiguity with regard to the acting subject here. It is in the active voice, and the subject is not anonymous. You see what I'm trying to to do here? I'm trying to do it carefully and slowly. (laughs) Question again. If capture of the two surrogate powers is an option, why were they not captured sooner? If that is what it means, if this is somehow a conflict that can be resolved by power, why didn't you do it sooner? What is it? What sort of necessity was it that made him have to let this go on and on and on? Why is God seeming to back up all the time? And even as Daniel was suggesting, allowing the opposing side to think, I can win this, if it is a power uh, power issue. Now, if it isn't a power issue as you go along, if something other than power is is, is at issue here, maybe something other than power is also going to solve the issue in the end. Maybe it's something other than power that makes it, makes it, fixes it. And, and then one final question. Why is Revelation at pains to say that the sword that killed the opposing side and its followers was a sword that came from his mouth? And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the, the horse. Why couldn't it just say, Why couldn't this verse just say, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh? Why does it need to qualify it? The sword that came from his mouth. So there there is a 
there is a necessity, there is a point on the part of Revelation to say it was that sword, the sword that came from his mouth. And here is my uh, uh, one sort of side glance to, to, to uh, you're saying the sword of persuasion, but here is Jesus talking in the Gospel of John. And, and let's just say, as, as I do, I, I think that, that the, the case for saying that the voice we hear in the book of Revelation is ideologically similar. Even you could say it is the same voice, it is John, which I think is also legitimate to say. But let's just say that it is ideologically similar to the, to the voice we hear in the Gospel of John. And the voice we hear in the Gospel of John says this, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but in order to sozo the world, which most translations say save the world. But sozo is also the word for healing. So you could also say heal the world, and it would be a perfectly legitimate translation. I did not come to judge the world, but in order to heal the world. But everyone was not healed. The one who turns me down and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So there is something going on, some consequence to choices, some, some things going on there. But it is the sword that came from his mouth that does it, which you and I will have to think more about. Well, this subject, you think, they get, you think it's all over now. But wait till you get to Revelation 20. That's where all interpretive projects come up and most come up for the final test. That's the sort of, that's the board exam. That's where the dental board and nursing board and medical boards, it's the board exam of the book of Revelation. And most, interp most people fail that exam. <laughs> Maybe we will too. 